I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Club. The podcast where we crap out, crack, (laughs) what? (laughs) Crack open a book like a- We're just a pile of crap, man. Like a fresh clunk of wood and we light it on fire. A what of wood? (laughs) Okay, anyway. We light it on fire and out comes nothing but warmth. And the rest of it stays in the garbage. You ever lit a piece of poop on fire? That's what this podcast is. So welcome aboard. I hope you enjoy the experience. It's a warm Christmas fire. It's a warm pile of poop. To creep you toasty (laughs) through the season. Claire. Yes. If you were to describe the last week's chapter of your memoir, what would you call it? The rent's too damn high. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? I feel like right now I'm at this era where... One, I'm about to do a double Christmas where I'm doing Christmas with my family and Max family and my brother's girlfriend. So there's just like a lot. And my grandma, there's a lot of people coming up. And it just today dawned on me gifts. And I'm like, that's a lot of gifts I gotta get. You are running low on time. I know. I just suddenly was like, oh my God, is Christmas like tomorrow? It's not tomorrow, but emotionally it could be. I think it is that time of the season where you're like, the holidays are so far away. And then you're like, okay, but every single night I have like a holiday party I have to go to. When am I going to live my life? And then on top of that, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm getting married next year. I've heard. And that is obviously like a looming expense. And then me and Mac are thinking about moving when our lease is up in February. You guys know about me and furniture. I can't emotionally handle it. I'm not in a place where I could just say, pick out some curtains. I am a broken, fucked up person. (laughs) And I get deeply triggered by that stuff. And I just think like moving is so expensive. I've never done it before in my life. And the idea of having to put down a deposit or something, it's a lot. And... I'm looking at all these costs and I'm like, surely one cannot uh, be expected to afford to live in a home, have a Christmas (laughs) and then get married, right? Like nobody's ever done that before, huh? I actually don't think anyone has. I'm at this point where I'm like, okay, Claire, eat toast every day of your life and see what happens. And that's where I'm at. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And toasty. Well, the toast is a negative in this scenario. (laughs) But you could spin it into a positive. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would you title last week's chapter? I guess I would call it the exact opposite. I feel like on a high of all the changes in my life, I am getting ready to move. I think I said last week that I signed a new lease. I have gone in a bit of a Claire Parker disease rabbit hole of couches. See, I don't think it's me specific. I think buying a couch is one of the hardest things anyone could do in life. And this is including death, birth, law school like I do think getting a couch is the test of your human strength (laughs) yeah no I agree and I think I'm handling it overall for the amount of complexity in the situation with grace (laughs) (laughs) with a grace and a powerpoint I made a powerpoint I've been if anyone wants it dm me I might have already purchased the couch by the time this episode comes out but you could maybe make it in under the wire anyway you know I'm excited about it I'm nervous about it but I also am so excited for like a new chapter to like be putting things in a new space fitting stuff in and it's on the first floor of a building and the idea of not walking up and down five flights of stairs every time a bug has to take a little pee is so fucking exciting to me that I am like buzzing I am simply buzzing with excitement so I guess I would call this chapter buzzing because I cannot wait for what next month brings I think 2020 which 23 who knows I stopped counting what's the the year that starts soonest to next it depends whose calendar you're looking at to me it's my 30th year okay so I guess it's your 30th year too yeah so whatever year is starting like in a couple of weeks I am fucking stoked as shit for it ah that's so nice to hear and now I am very excited because we are about to do a CNBC first ever thing a first ever 
rewriting of history. For the first time, we're doing something for a second time. <laughs> we have been wanting to do Mariah Carey's book again for a while. We obviously had to wait until Christmas time because that is her season. But we did Mariah Carey, I think either second or third in our lives when we were just young memoir reviewers and did not know all that we know now. And we have been thinking a lot that she deserved better by us, I think. I feel like we didn't understand how good her book was at the time. Because I think that there are a couple that we read in those first few months that we didn't really have a, as much context for yeah. as we do now. And we've been kind of eager to re-review Yeah, I think a them. lot of those early ones throughout 2023 we might redo. So that's a Jessica Simpson. That's probably a Holly Madison. We'll see. But I'm very excited because we reread Mariah Carey. And to read it again with fresh eyes, fresh stale eyes as somebody who's been burnt out by bad celebrity memoirs I was like okay we were right and that we were wrong yeah <laughs> and Mariah deserved better so this week for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever festivity of lights you're celebrating in your home we are doing the meaning of Mariah Carey with a guest yes we brought on Megan Collins aka Virgo like Beyonce <laughs> from TikTok one of our favorite follows a must follow if you will I mean it was just really fun to talk to her really fun to re-dive into Mariah I mean tis the motherfucking season all I want for Christmas is you all I want for Christmas is for you to enjoy this episode you guys I am so excited we have a guest on this week's episode Megan Collins I knew her initially as Virgo like Beyonce on TikTok and I want to give you the credit where credit is due a lot of people have been impressed by the way, that we predicted, quote unquote, Giselle and Tom's divorce. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. It was your TikTok. You did an analysis of a Giselle birthday post for Tom. And you were like, oh, this marriage is over. And I was like, I'm convinced. And you were spot on. Thank you so much. My job is to predict things. So this makes me really happy to hear. And before we start, what is your relationship to Mariah Carey? What did you know about her going in? Just like, where are you on the Lambley Stan calculator? Yes. So I wouldn't have considered myself part of the Lamely before, but after reading this book, I think I might technically qualify, but I share initials with Mariah Carey MC and that's very important to her. And that's like been a nickname of mine my whole life. And her Christmas album was also huge for me. Like I listened to that year round growing up. So Mariah Carey has always been part of my realm. And I think like being a black person growing up, there weren't a lot of like black role models, especially being mixed race. There aren't a lot of mixed people. So I feel like I always kind of felt like she was my representation, but I wasn't like a super fan or anything. And I never saw glitter. Um, but now after reading the book, I kind of want to watch it. <laughs> I love glitter. Okay. <laughs> it's like not good, but it is campy, good fun. And I will die on the hill that like, it is not a good movie, but it is not a disastrous like trash heap of a film that deserved six percent on Rotten Tomatoes I have been thinking about the fine line between camp and cringe lately I feel like if people like you they call it camp and if they don't like you they call it cringe yeah and based on what they said in the book it seemed like that was just a moment at least from my reading in culture where they just wanted to take Mariah down a peg so they were like oh you're cringe it's kind of like the Carson moment like yes. we're not gonna go in on this joke with you we're gonna leave you hanging here you know yes. exactly yeah I can't wait till we get to that part of the book because it fucks with me <laughs> I also think in reading this book it was very clear that Mariah wanted to correct the record and I think that one of my critiques is that some of it felt very revisionist history or like to like correct a narrative but I also see why she felt the need to do that 
Exactly. I feel the same way. Like I understand where the defensiveness comes from. And I think the first time I read it, I like saw the defensiveness as maybe, I don't want to say a lie, but revisionist history. Exactly. Like I'm like, okay, she doth protest too much, but this time I went in and I think I reread it as like her need to survive because she has been up against so much. And the amount that she insists is not because it's not true. It's because her voice has been covered for so long. So let's get in The Meaning of Mariah by Mariah Carey. Okay, I also want to say with this book, I think the first time we covered it, we like made fun a little bit of how fashion forward this book was. (laughs) She like describes her outfit head to toe in a lot of different situations. She's like obsessed with explaining exactly what she was wearing everywhere she went. But I realized and someone wrote in about it and I did some more research on it this time. Michaela Angela Davis, who was her co-writer on this book, was a fashion writer for a long time and worked as a stylist and at a few points, styled Mariah Carey. So I think the reason fashion is so forward in this book is because it was written by someone who writes about fashion. I also respect how much her co-writer is featured in this book. I like that her name is pretty big on the front page. And I really appreciate that she respects other people who are good at their crafts. And I feel like she said, this is a writer. She wrote this. It's written very writerly. Like the book is very flourished in its writing style and I think she's happy to give credit where credit's due and I really like that about her that being said I'm going to dive into the preface which even on the second go-round where I really liked and respected this book I was like Mariah what are you talking about she opens the preface and just lets you know I refuse to acknowledge time famously so I've made a lot of jokes and memes about it but it's a very real belief for me she then goes on to be like I don't calculate my life in years I live Christmas to Christmas celebration to celebration which is a measure of time (laughs) yeah it's funny to be like I don't go January 1st to January 1st I go December 25th to December 25th and you're like okay effectively the same thing (laughs) but then I do see how it like sets up for the rest of the book because the pacing of this book very much is like here are the moments that shaped me into who I am as opposed to like a flat reading of year by year And I get the preface in relation to the book and the way it's written, but I would like to hear her expound on this idea because she's like, that's why I gravitate towards endearing characters like Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and Tinkerbell. To me, being a character like Santa Claus or Tinkerbell, somebody who stays the same throughout time is like, it's like a weird relationship to time to think that you remain unchanged while everything else around you keeps going. And I, cause I think Mariah Carey is the opposite. She like has changed a lot. It feels reflective of her relationship to control the way that she feels like things happen inside of her versus outside of her. And I think that her like view on time is her taking control of her being. And I think that this preface is goofy, but I also <laughs> am like, it does shape the rest of the book. I understand why it's there, but it also doesn't make any sense, but it does make sense. Yeah, this to me just felt like them needing to prep the audience for how out of sync all of this is going to be. And there were times where I was like, am I not following this correctly? But then when I was listening to you guys do the first time, I was like, oh, no, she just doesn't have a clear timeline in her head. But I think that's what happens with your memories, right? And your experiences, Mm -hmm. they get conflated and you remember things happening closer together than they did or at the same time, even though they were years apart. And I think this is how she remembers it, but it doesn't make any sense. I also think this idea of timelessness is one that I would guess that people have told her her music has that quality because as I was like actually sitting with the lyrics, I was like, these aren't that deep and they're very literal, but they're good. And I think that's part of why they resonate with people because they they're really just like fairy tales, you know, and it's like just so simple and simplistic. And then she has this beautiful angelic voice and it's just really good and really pure, but it's not that 
deep. I felt the same way reading her poetry. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Especially when we'll get to this later. But when she meets Derek Jeter, when she's in her late 20s, it's the first time she's ever thinking about someone specific in her music. And you're like, okay, so your music literally was just generic. Like, what would it be like for a cute boy to love me? Probably a fantasy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And also, I think there's this Christmas to Christmas line that felt like her lawyers were like, put that in there, establish a record of you like being the Christmas queen. Because did you hear about this, like how she tried to trademark it and then she couldn't? The Christmas queen, the phrase Christmas queen. Yeah, she tried to trademark being the queen of Christmas and someone else has that trademark. But it's like clearly her whole thing now is I just work during Christmas and that's Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. dream. She really figured it out. Her <laughs> and Santa really were like, let's become seasonal workers. <laughs> so this book is divided into four sections. And part one is Wayward Child. And it gets into the story of her childhood, which was fucked up. And I think when you read about what Mariah Carey went through, the idea that she's a diva, I'm like, good, as she should be, as she deserves to be, as she has to be to like protect herself. So she starts with an intention and it's basically about her inner child. And so she talks about wanting to save little Mariah and much of this will be her story as she saw it. Some of my earliest memories are of violent moments. Because of that, I've always carried a heavy blanket with which I cover up large pieces of my childhood. But it is finally time to give her a voice to let her tell her story exactly as she experienced it. And then she goes into saying, I have spent a lot of time protecting people who never protected me. And despite my efforts to be above it, I still got dragged and sued and ripped off. In the end, I only hurt her more and it almost killed me. This is a book where she's like, I'm going to tell you the freaking truth. And I get that that's so hard to do, especially as the youngest child. But I mean, she really, I think with compassion and respect is like, here is how fucking awful my family treated me. And you're like, yeah, they did. That's bad. For the amount of flower language in this book, when she's talking about the way her family treated her and the way that they acted, like she uses very straightforward language. It really is exactly what happened. Yes. And I think that that's so important because she's not trying to like throw them under the bus, but she worked so hard to repair these relationships for so long and no one worked with her to do that. And so she's like, okay, yeah, this is the story. Like, this is why I have the relationship I do with my family who is constantly publicly suing me. Here's why we have problems. I agree and disagree a little bit. I think that she is definitely like telling the truth, but I also think that there's a lot that she's not saying. I will preface this with, I, like I said, a lot of my story and Mariah's story are like similar. I have a black dad and a Mexican mom, but she looks white. So she's white passing. Like I have two siblings, but much less abusive than what happened to Mariah, but you know, pretty similar. And I think that she's using a lot of therapy language that if she's talking to a therapist, I feel like the therapist is also telling her things like your mom's a narcissist and like different things like that, that she's not saying that I think she could more explicitly talk about these people as malicious manipulators if she wanted to. And I think that she wanted to protect them from that, but not so much to protect them, but to protect herself as like someone who has a family or like has like a pretty story. Like, I think she really wants to tie it up in a bow, but it's really harsh and ugly. I also have a very hot take that you guys might want to edit out because it's like kind of controversial. But so my hot take, and again, this is partially based on like me drawing parallels between myself and Mariah, but Mariah has a lot of indicators of being neurodivergent. And I think that if you look at the story through that lens of like, 
she's on the spectrum. That's like, you have a disability, even like the meltdown she has, and maybe they provoked her on purpose. And I just, there's a lot there that seems like she's grappling with the fact that her family manipulated her. She just has a lot of like eccentricities that are aligned with autism. Like she talks about walking on her tippy toes. She talks about stimming. Like she's like, and then I would just like say sounds and like, she just has all of these things that she does. And a lot of what she says and like her core wound with her mom, not protecting her, I think is tied to that. And her still unpacking that she has all of the symptoms of a woman who didn't get diagnosed because she's pretty, which is like a huge conversation right now. Interesting. That actually makes a lot of sense because I feel like she seems she was so alone as a child. I think that that also falls in line with the way that she is eager and willing to believe exactly what someone tells her. Like she is willing to take a lot at face value and you have to really, really, really prove your words wrong before she'll be like, wait a second, were you not telling the truth? I kind of spotted that early on and then read the whole book through the lens of Mariah Carey might be on the spectrum. (laughs) Interesting. She talks about her childhood and basically in her childhood, she is the youngest of three. Her older two siblings, I think are six or seven years older than her. So she was very much the baby. And when she was three years old, her parents got divorced. So she never really was raised with her two parents together. She doesn't have almost any memories of them eating dinner together or being a unit. But her father was very strict and abusive towards the other two. So from the get-go, there was kind of a divide between her and her older two siblings that was exacerbated by the fact that she was very light-skinned. And because of the split and being raised by her white mom, she felt that there was a lot of division between her and her two older siblings because of the racial dynamics. But the one thing that was true of her her whole life from a time she was a little girl was that she had an incredible musical ability and it's the one thing that her and her mom bonded over her mom was a Juilliard trained opera singer who had actually opened in Lincoln Center and she says when she was three years old she was able to sing an aria from the opera Rigoletto I don't know what that is but she, she looked at me stunned and at that moment I knew she saw me I was more than a little girl to her I was Mariah a musician it bonded them until it broke them apart because it felt like their relationship growing up that her mom was bestowing music upon her but when she was 14 years old it became clear that Mariah had a truly incredible talent and she talks about a moment where like suddenly there was a rift and there was a lot of jealousy between her and her mom her mom was suddenly realizing like okay she has an ability and the youth that I no longer have she might be successful and I'm just like a mom now and even that of her being like suddenly there was a shift I feel like that is giving neurodivergent because it's like, that's not how things happen in moments like that. That's Mm -hmm. a very cinematic way to look at the world. And then in that moment, everything changed. But reading the book, clearly her mom has problems and issues and resentments and it it builds. It's not a singular moment. And even in this paragraph, I, I saw what she said here. As I listened to her doing vocal exercises at home, the repetition of the scales felt like a mantra soothing my frightening little mind, which again, that's like stimming, right? So she's doing her anxiety. But then at the end, she says, she looked at me stunned her mom. Um, and at that moment, I knew she saw me. I was more than a little girl to her. I was Mariah, a musician. And so that to me was like her figuring out that this is how she could mask and like get approval from her mom. And I think that part of why it's so tragic for her is because this thing that she did to make her mom love her was the thing that made her mom hate her. 
It's true. But it's also interesting because on the flip side, throughout the book, she talks about growing up and looking at her mom as an example of what not to do. And she talks about the way that her mom got married and had kids young. And she goes, I would never make that mistake and ruin my career. I would never lose myself. So even though I think 100% what her mom did was wrong and like the way her mom treated her was awful, there was this early sense of Mariah from the time she was a little girl looked down at her mother. Like she did see her mother as a professional failure and use her as an example. I mean, to literally use your mom as an example of how not to be is something that her mom is going to pick up on and become resentful of. And not that it's Mariah's fault at all. Mariah was a child. But it's one of those things where I'm like, but she felt it. Like you were putting out a vibe that she was picking up on. When she was six, they moved to Long Island. They lived in predominantly wealthy white suburbs as the poorest family. Her father stayed in New York City in Brooklyn, it seems like. But her mom took Mariah and her older brother Morgan and her middle sister Allison went with the father. And of course, you can imagine how that makes poor Allison feel. The division in the family felt very strong. Later, it seems like the mother preferred Morgan. She loved Mariah when she was a little girl, but it becomes tough. Mariah senses a lot of sort of competition between her and Allison, or at least she views that Allison sees that there's competition. And like for pretty fair reasons, she's like, before I was born, it was my mom, my dad, a brother and a sister, like a pretty symmetrical family. And then when I was born, there was no longer the girl and the boy. There was the older girl and the younger girl. And then when they were splitting up the family because her parents got divorced, her mom insisted on taking Mariah and then took Morgan kind of by default because Morgan and the dad couldn't be together because they physically fought each other so Allison like just by default ended up with the dad and it seems like a lot of her life happened by default and that really sent her down a pretty devastating path my brother was broken early on and the only tool he had to defend himself was destruction he would fight everything his demons and everybody else especially our father the relationship he had with our father was not one that helped him rebuild instead it ground him down even further into his inner outrage a broken man cannot fix his broken boy My brother was shattered into pieces, scattered in the wind, and our father's outdated tools of militaristic discipline were inadequate to help him collect himself or prepare him for manhood. I mean, she just tells story after story. I don't know that we have time to get into all of them, but of times her mother would often call the police on her son, which, you know, when you think about the fact that her mom is this Irish white woman and her son is a black teenager, to be calling the police on your black son in wealthy Long Island suburbs is to put your child in potentially fatal danger. But at the same time, They were getting into fights that took multiple people to break them apart. Her son at one point slammed the mom up against the wall. It was a very violent home and her brother had a lot of anger and they just did not know what to do with him. At one point, he ended up in a psychiatric facility for teenagers. They just didn't know how to help him. And I think they didn't really try to help him. Yeah, it seems like her parents had a real, their decision process was if something is going wrong, we either like ignore it or send it away. And they repeated that on all of their children. And so at one point when there's a violent episode between her mom and her brother and her grandma saying, don't be scared of all the trouble you see. All your dreams and visions are going to happen for you. Always remember that. And she like takes that and internalizes it and says, I understood on a soul level that no matter what happened to me or around me, something lived inside of me that I could always call on. I had something that would guide me through any storm. The way she says, I always will be reliant on myself to get through any storm You like see that through the relationships she chooses later on and not necessarily chooses, but the way she like ends up in relationships later on, even though she looks for protectors, I don't think she ever looks for a partner or anyone that will genuinely help her or see her. She's like, I have to be there for myself and these people will fulfill these roles around me that I can't do myself. I also, she has this moment of the police are coming in to pick her mom off the ground. And one of the cops says about Mariah, if this kid makes it, it'll be a miracle. And that night I became less of a kid and more of a miracle. And I really agree with you, Megan, that there is this 
cinematic way of being like, and in this moment, fairy godmother stopped her fingers and I decided to become a champion. It's very like Rocky-esque. And I think that she almost, it's like a coping mechanism she's had to develop where she almost sees herself as a character in a movie as opposed to like a human being experiencing every moment as it's coming because that's how she was able to save herself. And not just like a character in a movie, a character in a Hallmark movie who's like also an angel and like princess, but she doesn't know it. And I think that she started that from a young age to protect herself from a lot of the dark realities. And then she becomes the queen of Christmas. (laughs) Well, not TM. (laughs) She's still working on it. She's going to have to take it by siege. She becomes a queen of Christmas. (laughs) Lowercase Q. (laughs) And so then she gives a little bit of background on her father. And she really loves her father. Her father has passed before the end of this book. And I think that that brought a lot of closure to the relationship she has with her dad but she explains that her father grew up in a chaotic home he craved discipline culture and freedom so he joined the military a logical choice for a man who had had no say over the time or skin into which he was born and he had this horrific experience where a woman was raped he was blamed for it and he was like held as a prisoner by the army until one day they just let him go and said oh sorry or they didn't even say sorry, of course. They just said, we got the other guy. You're free to go. And so he left the military. But the trauma that that would inflict upon somebody that he was, it was completely racial. They just said it was a black man. They picked him. They punished him. And then there was never any reckoning of that. And she's like, he came back and he had so much PTSD and he just clung to control and discipline as a way of self-preservation that was not necessarily helpful to the way he raised his children, but was why he was the way he was. Yeah. And I think there's so much that could be said around black men who have kids with white women. And like, I think at this specific time, though, and based on everything else that she said about how he grappled with his race, I think that he saw that as kind of a way to protect himself and his kids. And I think that when he had this family of mixed kids and still was facing a lot of these realities, he thought that proximity to whiteness would protect him more and protect them more. And I think he just like really didn't know what to do or how to handle it. And like you said, they're just so avoidant that they just don't know how to handle anything. And so he just like shut down as the dad. Yeah. And she was really affected by the fact that she was never given the vocabulary or the conversation she needed to understand her own existence as a mixed race person, especially in this white world. Her family did not give her any of the tools she needed to understand what she was experiencing. And I think part of it is they didn't have the tools, like not to like completely give them a pass. But I think that that's what you're saying about generational trauma. Like her dad obviously also didn't know how to grapple with it. So he thought, well, I'll have kids that are closer to whiteness than me so that I don't have to, maybe they'll have an easier time than I do, you know? And so he probably felt like a failure when he wasn't able to protect her from those specific things. Because I found that interesting when he dies, she says she made sure to have like a lot of black people in the church because she's like, he was often the only black person in any room. And he came from this like very, it sounded like important black family up in Harlem. Like his mother owned multiple townhouses. They owned a church. It seemed like they had, there was cousins. There's, there was a community for him on the Island of Manhattan. And it seems like he had chosen to kind of leave that specifically. And I think that, you know, is kind of one of the criticisms that people have about the motivations of people doing interracial marriage. Like, is it really that you really just fell in love with that person or 
were you fetishizing them in some way? And with that specific thing, it's like what it seems like he was running away from his blackness. And that's one of the ways that he looked to do it by like Mm -hmm. marrying outside of being black. But it's like you're saying he chose to put himself in these all white spaces and he wanted approval from white people for some reason. And I think that he was upset he wasn't getting that. But I also think that there's a lot of that in Mariah and in her siblings that she also, I don't think, has grappled with. I want to bring up this next part, though, because she's trying to give a background on what it was like growing up in her family. And she was obviously the baby. And she was talking about how she thought her family was so weird. Her dad took that to heart and was really hurt by that. And she's like, you don't understand, though. Our family was weird. And she's like, my older siblings were always babysitting me. And she tells a story about a time her older sister brings her friends over and they're all kind of smoking weed and they're having five-year-old Mariah Carey perform. Go ask Alice and sing it. And she goes, tell me that's not weird. And she's like a bunch of teens sitting around doing a pseudo seance, having their little sister sing for them. And something that I think trauma does to people is when you're so destabilized and you come to this realization that what you experienced is not normal, you don't think anything's normal. And this is one of those examples where I'm like, Mariah, picking on your little sibling is the most normal thing in the world teenagers thinking that they're witches is the most normal thing in the world. This is an example of actually very normal family dynamics where you dress up your little sibling beyond their age as a joke to make some teenagers laugh. And I'm like, but the problem is when your entire ground has been taken out from under you, you're not sure what you can stand by. And so this is an example. I was like, okay, I don't know, Mariah, that's just older sibling bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, agreed. She does that a bunch of times in this book, like in relationships with her family where she's like, wasn't this the craziest thing? And I'm like, no, no, that's the that's the normal thing that you've said. Everything (laughs) else leading up to that is something I can't wrap my brain around. Exactly. She would make these small moments, these big, huge traumas, like the picture one. I get that that's sad, but she's like, and that was my biggest trauma when they laughed at the picture of my family. And then goes on to describe several other instances of experiencing racism about her family that are way worse. It's so interesting that you've chosen these specific moments to highlight. Yeah, just for context, when she was in preschool, she drew a picture of her family and her preschool teachers hadn't met her dad. So when she drew her family and then colored her dad in in dark brown the teachers laughed they kept saying you used the wrong crayon you used the wrong crayon and she cried and was like I didn't use the wrong crayon they just don't know my dad and that is like the capital T trauma that she points to in her childhood about racism so she goes through her childhood she does give her mom credit for giving her such an unstable life she says I mean her mom was very bohemian she says the one thing that she did was not only surround her with music but also musicianship and this Mariah gives a lot of credit to in like teaching her about the craft behind music which she holds very dearly and I think this was one of our main takeaways the first time we covered this book was that she really like needs you to understand how heavily she plays a role in the creation of her music she is a really talented musician and singer and writer and this she learned from a young age being surrounded by musicians with her mom and then when she's in high school she gets so into music she begins like studying the radio she's learning what makes a hit about like the work of background singers and this like is why she was a global sensation when she was like 20. Someone call it a hyperfixation. <laughs> also, I don't know where it is, but in that part where she was saying she hung out with musicians and stuff, like I thought that was a little weird. Like, why is the child hanging out with a bunch of bohemians? <laughs> Not to be that person, but also like it doesn't sound like she felt protected. That was a theme. Mm-hmm. And then she talks about like, oh, yeah, I got to hang out with all of these musicians. And I was just like, interesting. I'm sure that that was not maybe the best environment for a child, you know? Yeah. I mean, she mentioned some of the safest people in her life are the 
other people that she meets through her mom. So she had a neighbor, I think, that she trusted. When her brother threw her mom against the wall, she didn't call the cops. She called a neighbor and the neighbor called the cops. She had other adults in her life that like were not her family that she trusted. To use this as a transition, she talks about her mother and says, but ours is a story of betrayal and beauty, of love and abandonment, of sacrifice and survival. I've emancipated myself from bondage several times, but there is a cloud of sadness that I suspect will always hang over me. Not simply because of my mother, but because of our complicated journey together. It has caused me so much pain and confusion. Time has shown me there is no benefit in trying to protect people who have never tried to protect me. Time and motherhood have finally given me the courage to honestly face who my mother has been to me. That's very intense. Something I really love about this book is the way she talks about dealing with her relationships with her family. So her two siblings and then her mother and how by the end of the book, she comes to the conclusion she just cannot have her siblings in her life that they... she just can't have them but she's like you can't cut out your mom that easily she's like it's a simple thing to do but it's it's not easy and her whole adulthood it seems has been spent trying to figure out what boundaries she can place with her mom so that she doesn't have to cut her out 100 percent, but so that she can live a life where she doesn't feel so burdened by her mom's like abuse (laughs) emotional abuse essentially I think she has this overarching belief that the relationships that she thinks should exist will exist someday. And I think her going into adulthood is her learning that like the classic relationships that she imagines, like you see this in her songwriting, all of her early albums were her just like hypothesizing on the idea of love and she's never actually experienced it until much later. You see her having like the idea of family and then coming into what her family can actually do and provide and like how they can coexist together and so you see her like with Tommy thinking okay this will morph into what I think a marriage should be you you see with her mom like this will morph into what I think a mother-daughter relationship should be and like finally breaking free of the fantasies that she's created of what relationships are so she gets into her mother's background and her mother comes from a super racist Irish family in Springfield Illinois and when she her mother married a black man and had children with him she was excommunicated from the family my mother's marriage to my father was beyond betrayal to her mother it was a high crime against her white heritage punishable by excommunication and then mariah goes on to wonder like why did she do that why did she give up her career why when she came from a family that was so racist and hateful did she go on to marry a black man and she's like it makes me wonder if she ever did love my dad or if this was all just like an act of rebellion Obviously, they got divorced when she was young, but she's like, there's no evidence that they ever loved each other. And maybe she, they just don't talk about it. But she's like, I don't ever hear about the good times. So I have to wonder why they even ended up together. Feels like both her mom and her dad were running from their like upbringings into each other. And now there are like three kids who are just kind of a product of this environment. This is one of the many calculations that as a child, I observed my mother make and placed into a file labeled what not to do. And she says this about her, both her mother and her sister. And as we'll see later, her and her sister have a horrible relationship. Fairly, what her sister has done to Mariah Carey is horrible. But she also describes often how both her older siblings like had a block and a darkness in them and that Mariah just was born with this light and this ability to persevere. And I understand that because Mariah has been the victim of a lot of their abuse and attacks. It's hard for her to have a hundred percent compassion, empathy for them. But from a bystander, I'm like, I understand that they went through hell and you are now a global superstar worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Who knows why it was Mariah Carey out of the three of them that was born with like a light and an ambition and a talent and like this innate ability. But you know, they all came out of the same situation and her, her siblings were like fucked for life. And I could understand why they would just hate her. There was a scene where she talks about her mom giving her dad a look when he started to yell at her and then him not yelling at her. And 
as a bystander read that as the older siblings, like she picked up on it too, that they were jealous. But what does that really mean? It means that they had very different childhoods and that the dad was super abusive to them. And then when Mariah was born, somehow turned over a new leaf. And like that must have sucked to watch your dad, even if he wasn't perfect, be a better dad to your younger, lighter sister who everybody loves than you. And I'm sure that the mom seems like she kind of neglected the Allison once um, Mariah was born and she just fully replaced her. So that sucks. (laughs) She mentions at one point her mom would call her hers, like my little one. Mariah was her mom's kid, even though her mom already had two other kids. So that must have been really traumatic for the older siblings. And I think the fact that Mariah is so much younger than her older siblings. So for her to be like, my siblings had this darkness in them and I had this light in me. It's like, well, maybe you weren't alive when they still had light in them. Maybe it had already been stomped out by the time you came around and it got further stomped by your parents' preferential treatment of you. And I don't mean that in like a mean way to Mariah. Like I don't think it's a thing that she can comprehend. This just was her perspective. But from an outsider's perspective, I'm just like, okay, maybe there was a light at some point. It just didn't exist in your life. No, I completely agree. I thought that was kind of mean of her to say that she was like this light among her family of darkness. I thought that was not fair. (laughs) She says, the fact that I believed I could become a successful artist is one of my greatest strengths. I'm like, yeah, it is. But something we've seen in all these memoirs is that you have to have this like in almost insane belief in yourself. And not that Mariah Carey isn't like the most naturally talented person. We get to it later. She was turning down record deals for more money than she'd ever seen because she was like, I know I'm worth even more than this. That is something that you just have to be born with. I don't know when you're her siblings. I can't imagine how hard that must be. Also, I think one of the few things I will call her on in this book is she gives her dad a lot of credit and I think one of the parenting choices he made with Allison that we'll get to is one of the most fucked up things I've ever seen in my life and she does not really ever acknowledge wholly what he did to Allison and so we'll keep going but I wonder how much she viewed their relationship as like she is the light and they are the dark when she was younger because it does seem like she looked up to her siblings a pretty solid amount yeah I wonder if it's like something she's come up with in therapy for survivor's guilt like she just had to be like why was it me and not them I don't know I was just born with a light and they weren't and I that's all I can say about it she then goes to talk about just growing up with her mom her mom often had all these boyfriends they all sounded awful she had one nice boyfriend ever who did the gardening on this estate ground. So they all got to live in kind of like the servant's house, but it wasn't the nicest place she had ever been. And after a couple of years of a good life with him, he had bought her a kitten and it seemed like he was really sweet to her. One day she gets home and he's just sitting in the living room with a gun. And her mom is like, we have to get out of here. And that's the last time she ever saw him. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, if you look back and say the best man in my life was the one that we had to leave because he was holding a rifle in the living room. Her childhood was truly unsafe and scary every day it has taken me a lifetime to find the courage to confront the stark duality of my mother the beauty and the beast that coexist in one person and to discover there's beauty in all of us but who loved you and how they loved you will determine how long it takes to realize it the moment she talks about that we referenced earlier when we say that there's this stark rift Mariah had been singing tunes and had been practicing with her mom and even as young as 12 had started working on jingles and been getting paid to do music with stuff and took her voice very seriously. And one day they were in the car. They were like singing along to pop music in the car and it was a Michael Jackson song and her mom sang it in an operatic style because that's her style of singing. And Mariah laughed at her and then the mom just kind of like went 
dark and said, you should only hope that one day you become half the singer I am. My heart dropped. Still to this day, what she said haunts me and hurts me. I don't know if she meant to cut me down to size or if it was just her bruised ego talking. All I know is that those words shot out of her mouth and pierced my chest and were buried in my heart. Again, to what you're saying, this cinematic, like this was the moment style of the way she views things. I do think your mom was being obnoxious. I don't think your mom meant to say words that like pierced you and haunted you for the rest of your life. Yeah, that was one of the more melodramatic (laughs) because her mom does some awful things to her. But this is the one that pierced you forever. Okay, she says like this moment shattered their trust. And I'm like, okay. And to Ashley's point, if she was laughing at her, her mom's clearly very insecure and she's been making jabs at her and she's becoming this beautiful woman who's not, again, she should rise above because she's her mom. But I don't think that Mariah is saying that she like plays an active role at all. Everything just happens to her and everyone else is just the villain and she's just this hero being moved along by their whims and jabs. And then a hero comes along. (laughs) When Allison was 15, and this gets to the thing that I think was almost an unforgivable sin by her father. Allison, understandably, is feeling very rejected by her mom. She went to live with the dad. So, of course, Allison feels incredibly rejected. And in her memory, she's like, mom basically kicked me out. She didn't want anything to do with me. And then the mother's explanation is Allison chose her father. She didn't want him to be alone. She left us. Mariah goes, I think there's truth in both statements. And I agree. When Allison was 15, she gets pregnant by a 19-year-old man who's in the military who's stationed in the Philippines. The mother says, you have to get an abortion. The father says, you can have the baby, but you have to marry him and move to the Philippines. So at 15 years old, he has his pregnant daughter move to another fucking country with a man she barely knows to have a baby. To have a child in a country that you're not familiar with, with a man you barely know and no support at any age feels... Like one of the cruelest things you could do to somebody. I can't imagine anything harder. And at 15, she doesn't know anything. She comes back a few years later with the baby and she is now addicted to drugs and working as a sex worker. And she never, ever, ever recovers. And where was any adult? Some adult had to sit down and say, no, come to my house. The way that they failed Allison, it's like one of the greatest parenting failures I've seen, I think, in any of the memoirs we've read. Since the day they got divorced, the way that they were just like Allison is the leftover. Morgan has to be here. I want Mariah here. Allison, wherever she ends up is where it's going to be. I mean, to think that a kid is not going to sense that is insane to think that like a teenager isn't going to sense that and then rebel in some way. You're just like, of course, the way Mariah is like, no one protected me, like could have been worse. (laughs) Whatever happened to her over there or on Long Island or in a back room somewhere had taken its toll on her. That super smart, beautiful girl with dark curls who's my big sister had hardened into a strange kind of absence. Something or many things must have happened to her to lead her to barter her body for money and drugs as she went on to do for years. So then Allison comes back to New York and she's back in Mariah's life. And I'm just going to run through the series of events that happens before their relationship falls apart forever. So she comes back and Mariah's pretty happy to have her older sister just like back and taking her around and introducing her to like older, interesting people. She goes with Allison to her boyfriend's house. Her boyfriend is a much older man named John. 
And at John's house, Allison drugs Mariah and she just like passes out, has no idea what happened to her. That may have been the first time that year she could have seriously hurt me, but it certainly wasn't the last. Throughout that year, Allison has a private phone line installed in Mariah's room and will, would call her in the middle of the night absolutely manic and would kind of force Mariah in the middle of the night to talk her off a ledge. And then Mariah would just like wake up and go to seventh grade. And then there was a day that she sent John to go pick Mariah up without her. John took her to a movie and sexually assaulted her. He like kissed her and was probably going to do more, but they kind of got caught. And then he brought Mariah home. And then the final straw was one day Allison came over to visit Mariah to have tea. The dad called. Mariah was talking to the dad and Allison was kind of motioning like, don't tell him I'm here. And Mariah thought Allison was kidding. So she's like, Allison's here. Do you want to talk to her? And Allison throws scalding hot tea on Mariah and she got third degree burns. And that was the end. Yeah. I mean, I think also on that time when John takes her to the movie theater, he initially takes her to a poker game with like old men in some back room. And the implication is that they were going to try to sex traffic 12 year old Mariah. Understandably unforgivable. I don't know how you could ever forgive someone who had done that to her. And she wanted to love her sister so badly. She says, I know my sister is deeply wounded. She is the most brilliant and broken person I've ever known. I may never understand what hurt her so badly that it made her hurt so many others in return. But to me, She was her own most permanently damaged victim. From my perspective, she chose to take up a permanent residence in victim land. The promise of her life was squandered in a tragic series of cheap bargains rather than being redeemed through the difficult lifelong work of recovery and rebuilding oneself. I think like Mariah has had to do what she has had to do to protect herself. I think the journey her sister is on, it does not seem like there's it's ever going to get better. And I get that like Mariah can't just live in that with her. So this is what she's had to do to cut ties. But I am like, I don't know. She is in victim land. Like, I don't know what the fuck happened to her, but it was it would have taken a lot of willpower to come back from it yeah. all. I think one of the reasons that she includes these stories is to combat some of the headlines and the things that her sister has said about her in the public. So she doesn't even include that. She doesn't say, like, to my defense. Like, she's just trying to say, here's my relationship with my sister. Any headlines you've seen of her suing me for money, her trying to get this and that from me, like, this is why we don't have a relationship. This is the end-all, be-all, final say in the matter. But also, you said that she attempted to sex traffic her. Didn't she, like, actually sex traffic her at some point? I guess like like that was the idea with John when she sent John to pick her up. So yeah, she sex trafficked her. He never had sex with Mariah, according to well, Mariah. Well, at some point she's like drugged, right? Yeah. Like her sister yeah. takes her somewhere and drugs. I took that to mean like she was raped then. She specifically makes a mention of being like, I don't know what happened, but that was, it was the first time, but it wasn't the worst time. And so I wonder if Mariah doesn't know what's happened and she's like chosen to believe nothing happened that night because I think the way it's said is like later that kiss in the car was worse. I took that to mean that too, but I also was like if she doesn't want to write that out or like look into that moment, then I won't either. Yeah. It's kind of like what I decide. I was like, you know what? If that's what we're going to get from that day, then that's what I'll take. Same, but I just took it to be like my sister sex trafficked me like this is something that my sister did so I took that moment of like him picking her up as this was not a spur of the moment decision or as something that she fell into this is something that she planned and coordinated with someone else premeditated no 100% that situation was her sex trafficking her I, I have the quote here for when she gets drugged 
And she says, at 12, I probably weighed 80 pounds soaking wet, and Allison gave me a whole Valium. I don't know why my sister drugged me. I don't know why my mother let me go with her and this man. Perhaps they both wanted me out of their hair for the evening, but my life was in jeopardy in her hands. This may have been the first time that year she could have seriously hurt me, but it certainly wasn't the last. And I feel like that use of could kind of like leaves it purposefully vague about what actually happened. And it suggests to me that in her life, she has chosen to say, I fell asleep and nothing happened. Thank God. And then she had that moment in the drive-in movie theater where there's a man in the car next door who gives them a dirty look and, and causes John to drop her right off. She's like, thank God. Like, I feel like she looks back at her childhood and is like, something horrible could have happened to me. I'm lucky it didn't. And I think that that is like the truth she lives with. I don't know if that's the truth of what happened. Either way, it's still horrific. And I think the first time we read this, I was actually much more like something happened to her that she's not admitting. And not in like a you owe us every detail way, but I was like, she was such a vulnerable person in so many bad situations that the chances that the worst thing that ever physically happened to her was a kiss felt unrealistic. And then like looking back, I'm like, I don't know, man, as a kid, the things that she was in would fuck you up. She was sex trafficked. Nobody maybe had sex with her, but she was trafficked. And that in itself is enough of a trauma to fuck you up for life. Maybe that's all the bad that had to have happened for her to be like forever trauma. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. I don't know. And I think that the point and why this is in this too, isn't so much to say like this happened to me, but to say my sister did this to me. And I think that the sister did it as like punishment because she felt like no one protected her when she's like, I don't know why my mom let me go with her. I felt like that was like the mom felt guilty. Part of it was like abuse against the mom as well. Like I'm taking your prized baby and I'm going to go put her in dangerous situations that you can't protect her from because you didn't protect me either. In terms of like letting anyone go, I think the mom was like pretty indifferent overall. And that's how Allison ended up in the situation he ended up in. And that's how Mariah almost ended up in the situation that Allison ended up in. So then there's a chapter about living between white and black beauty standards and like not knowing what to do with her hair, being told by her black aunts that her lips are too thin and then being told by the white makeup counter lady that her lips are too full. And it's the first chapter where someone really tends to her hair and like helps her untangle and care for her hair. And this is also the first chapter where she starts punctuating sentences with dolling at the end of everything. And so I think this is like her coming into her glamorous self and discovering that there is another side to the way she feels so out of place. And she is developing into this beautiful person. This is an example of a time she goes and hangs out with her father's side of the family. And they're going to do this big day where they finally do her hair and they use a hot comb and it just burns her hair right off. And they're like, oh, sorry, we can't help you either. And I think these moments almost kill any hope that she had that it's like, well, I'm with the wrong family now, but if I had just been with my dad's side, things would be better. And this almost like doubles down that there's like, no, there's nowhere for you to go. And she feels twice as isolated. I think that there's a lot about colorism in this book that she, again, just doesn't dive as deep as I would have liked her to, where she's just like, and then this happens. And she kind of falls into like the tragic mulatto trope, if you guys have heard of that, of like, oh, meeting mix is like the worst thing that ever happened because no one understands me. And it's like, yes, that's true. But take that and think about how it would feel to be black or like how, you know, and she doesn't interrogate any of her own white privilege at all either. It's just, oh, yep, I'm just like, so tragic. No one gets me. So I had a lot of sympathy for her. But I also there's like a joke in the black community about like light skinned people not like really getting it. And I feel like this was like peak light skin behavior. <laughs> the whole sentence is like, 
I'm too white to hang out with the black kids and I'm too black to hang out with the white kids. End of sentence. Like that's all there is to it. And you're like, well, there is a little more to it probably. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) So then she skips ahead to, does she graduate high school or she just like leave high school? She's 17 years old and she moves into the city. It seems like she left high school because she was not that great academically and she went to beauty school for two years. So this next section, Sing Sing, which is one of the other things that I remember we critiqued on the first read that I do stand by today. Sing Sing is a reference to the $30 million mansion she built with Tommy Mottola that she referred to Sing Sing, which is like a high security upstate prison. And I'm like, listen, Mariah, what happened to you was abuse and horrible, but it is different than literal prison. I understand that the situation felt oppressive and like all situations where you don't have autonomy feel so stifling. But she's like, and I would crawl out of my silk sheets and my silk jammies and creep down to the kitchen for just a moment to myself. And I'm like, how much silk was there? They don't have that at Sing Sing. (laughs) I think that she didn't need to hit the prison parallel quite so hard oh there was a million prison puns it was sing sing it was hill jail it was everything was incarceration central and I'm like Mariah what are your other big things in this book is like she calls out multiple times how her white mom weaponized the police against her black siblings and her to then trivially be like and another jail I was in (laughs) was my ballroom (laughs) a hot tub in many ways is like solitary confinement (laughs) I was constantly being surveilled as I went from the indoor pool to the outdoor pool. And you're like, (laughs) she leaves school, as we said, at 17 years old, she had gone to beauty school and she moves into the city completely by herself. She has a dollar to her name a day. She's living off of a dollar. This is another one of those things where I would have loved a timeline. I think by not keeping it chronological, she's able to glamorize when she was down and out. Because at this point, she had been working on music and getting paid for her music since she was 12 years old. She had been working with local Long Island bands to do background vocals. She had been doing jingles for commercials. She was quite successful in the Long Island scene. And then she moved to New York where she started out living with her brother in her brother's empty apartment. And she's like, I only had $1 a day. I could take the subway or eat a bagel. Within like two years, she's married to Tommy Matolas. I think there really was maybe like four or five weeks where she was figuring it out. And she really hypes up her days as a waitress, which I think might have been no longer than a month. (laughs) She's like a waitress and then a coat check girl. At most one year that she's like living in New York City trying to make ends meet before she ends up getting this record deal. So she's living in her brother's apartment in the West Village and taking care of his cats. Then she moves in with a friend who she's sleeping in a crawl space. This is another thing that I'm like, wait a second. These might not be your friends. She's sleeping in a crawl space in this apartment for $500 a month. I would say in today's New York real estate, you can probably sleep in someone's like public area crawl space for $500 a month. She was sleeping in the kitchen. She was sleeping like on top of the cupboards on a twin bed. And I was like, oh, you were paying for the whole apartment, Mariah. This was the late 80s. There is no way that a crawl space would be $500. I mean, she's either like completely misremembering how much, like maybe they were charging her $50 and like this was a misprint. $500 for a crawl space in the 80s is highway robbery. I felt the same way too. I was like, oh, she was either getting scammed or she's just so rich that she's like, what like, a, what's poor a low pay? amount of money. <laughs> <laughs> but very quickly, she starts doing background vocals. And that's why I kind of questioned this whole waitress thing because it seems like out the gate, she had a lot of connections in the city and she started doing background vocals. And then she says the way it works is singers like singing with other singers. So 
immediately she was taken in by the elite background vocalists and gigging a lot and quickly she starts working with for this woman Brenda who I had never heard of but she had a hit single at the time and Brenda heard her audition for background vocals and everybody was like oh you're the star here but she makes friends and she moves into a different apartment with this girl Josephine who's a Swedish model who had an open relationship with her brother which was a detail that I was like Mariah why (laughs) why did we need to know that you're 19 year old brother had an open relationship at one point it felt very like <laughs> with a Swedish model named Josephine who like I think is still her friend so she moves in with Josephine things are coming up she's meeting as many people as she can she's a big hustler she has this whole thing about how she was wearing her mom's shoes that were a size and a half too small and had holes in the bottom it's one of those things where I was like mm, for what a week because I don't know I feel like <laughs> she really dragged out the struggling artist section because I know that she went in with gigs lined up. I, I'm not saying she was rich from the get-go, but this whole idea that she was living off of a dollar a day, I think she was getting steady work very quickly. And I'm very impressed. I mean, she was 17 years old doing it on her own, but she went in having, at first she started just driving in back and forth because she was like doing so many gigs all night. So I'm like, I know that you didn't show up with a dollar in your pocket and not a name in sight. You showed up with like a pretty solid network and opportunity. Maybe it was like a month or so before checks roll in. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I don't think she was making a lot either. And she was like working with the same people at night to like put together a demo. And she was doing that completely independently. She was totally unsigned again, because she was quite successful by the time she was like 19. The fact that she was 17 here, I'm like, okay. I think this was one of those correct the record things. I think that she probably has heard that she didn't have to work hard because she married Tommy. So like everything was just handed to her. And so I think that this was her trying to be like, no, I was putting everything I had into this before I struck gold. (laughs) I do think that that is like a narrative around her that she just walked in to New York City one day and like locked eyes with Tommy Mottola and then had a career. And even if that were true, I feel like what she went through for the first 17 years of her life, I'm just like, sure, do it. it. Go. (laughs) And can I say that is basically what happened? (laughs) So she spent a year doing background vocals and then she went on tour with this woman, Brenda. And at this point, she was also laying down her own demo and she was working with some man who somehow is still making money off Mariah Carey, I guess. And she laid down a demo. She was shopping her demo all around and she goes, I got an offer for somebody to own one of my songs to put in a movie for $5,000. And I knew I was worth more. So I said no. The thing about Mariah is I don't think there was one single day that she wasn't like actively taking giant strides towards her future. I don't think there was a single day that went by where there wasn't evidence that everything was going in the right direction. She said she learned from a Beatles documentary that owning your own publishing was the most important thing you could have. And that was like, and I mean, she was so fucking right. So Brenda takes her to this party and contrary to everything we just said about all the hard work and stuff, she does in fact go to a party and make eye contact with Tommy Mottola for one second and she says in that second the stars aligned she just knew it was going down she says she showed up she had this one outfit she wore every day that was like a tank dress tights socks and Reeboks and every other girl there was trying to get a record deal so dressed to the nines all Kardashian doubt and she was like why is he looking at me and I'm like Mariah because you're the most beautiful girl in the world because you're so fucking pretty (laughs) she is the dream girl and the way that she just throws on some jeans and a top and she looks at you with her breathy voice and her big eyes and you know that there's something in there that's special. And so I feel like her, Shania Twain and Britney Spears have this look about them where you're like, I don't know what is happening, but this is it. It's a, <laughs> and it's like something that will never be recreated because ex- except for maybe by Addison Rae. But in the 90s, you were allowed to look like a person. 
they were allowed to look like themselves and you're not allowed to do that anymore. You have to be optimized for perfection. But what's endearing about all of them is something so, so like human. <laughs> They're, I mean, like tens, but in a very human way. <laughs> tens, but where you can like talk to them and you're like, I feel like they'd be nice. Yeah, they're bathroom girl tens. So she had been carrying her demo everywhere. She hands him the demo. Apparently he leaves the party. The rumor is he leaves the party to go to his limousine, stretch limousines. What a dated concept. Listens to the demo, goes back to the party to be like, you're a star, baby. But she had already left. She goes home. She has a million voicemails from him. He's obsessed with meeting her. Sure enough, she gets a million dollar deal from Sony Records. Also, she says that... uh, in the voicemails, it took her a while to get to his voicemail because her and her roommate used to do this bit where they would like call and do different accents <laughs> acting like they were like the super or some person calling. And it's like, I don't know why this was important other than the fact that one of Mariah Carey's like huge things is like letting you know that she is funny. And she's not. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like she has a good sense of humor. Like she has a really yeah. good sense of humor, but she's not funny. So she talks about marrying Tommy and I guess it was just like lickety split. They met eyes. I don't know what the actual timeline was on this, but she says I was 19 years old and already lived a lifetime of chaos, surviving only by my own scrappy determination. Then this powerful man came along, parting the seas to make room for my dream. He truly believed in me. So them getting together and her record deal happened simultaneously. When she got her record deal, she got her own apartment all by herself. And then it seems like she lived there for like six weeks before he was like, you have to move in with me. I don't know how long she lived in that apartment. I don't know how leases work. She must have moved in like a month after that. I think he just took her out to Westchester one day. He's like, here's where we're going to build our mansion. For some reason, and God bless her heart, he was 21 years older than her. And she was like, well, it's going to be our home. So I'll split it with you 50-50. And she had just gotten this million dollar record deal. And she was so stoked. The mansion cost $30 million. So when she said I had a million dollars, I was going to split it with him 50-50. I was like, huh, inflation must have gotten really bad because I can't imagine a record producer would have a $1 million house. And then she's like, it was $30 million. So I was like, yep. That sounds right to me. And she was like, I didn't know how to fucking pay for it. (laughs) So they build this giant dream house. They call it the storybook house. Again, to Megan's point, she is trying to mold her life after a fairy tale. At a certain point, I think she recognizes she just couldn't keep living that way. But she wanted this to be her dream mansion. And something I do think should be said for their relationship is how much she almost dissociated her humanity from her musical talents. Like she had given up, I think her hope to have true love or safety or trust and said, what I want is a music deal and to be a recording artist and I'll sacrifice everything else. She like hid her sense of self in her ability as a musician. And so the one thing about Tommy Amatola, even though he was awful in many ways is he recognized her genius. And he said to her, you're going to be like Michael Jackson. Like I see it. And he was the first person outside of herself who saw that she could be iconic. And I think in that way, he loved the parts of herself that she loved And it was enough for her. I also think that she saw it as like they were co-building her career. And so like their marriage was not about like them loving each other. It was about he saw this and they both believed in this thing and were building it together. Because I think his career benefited from signing her as well. Like I think she very much sees it as like, oh, yeah, I got this because, you know, Tommy and like my talent and whatever, but also like in entertainment like you guys know people see like oh this person has it and then they're on it like like flies like so he just saw oh she has it and I think that he also saw she was easy to manipulate and that if he married her he would be able to control her so much more I don't think he really even loved her either I think he saw it as like marrying her to control her 
I just wanted to read this quote. She says, there was never really a strong sexual or physical attraction there, but at the time I needed safety and stability and a sense of home more than I needed a boyfriend. Tommy understood that and he provided. I gave him my work and my trust. I gave him my conviction and the combination to my moral code. So she like is just blatantly saying like we were partners in my career because they met and he like signed her and their sort of courtship began all in the same day. I think that she thought that in order to like have the career she wanted, she didn't know how to untangle the like potential romance with the potential record deal. So she went with it all together and was like, this is the sturdiest way for me to make my dreams happen in order to like really combine every part of me into this existence. And then what you were saying about this being a entertainment industry deal, essentially her personal life became part of an entertainment industry deal. Like later after they get married, they're on their honeymoon and they have this whole big wedding that is supposed to be the cover of people magazine. And then Tommy's team is on the phone with him from their honeymoon saying like you being on the cover of people magazine is not great for your executive image. It makes you seem like a tabloid star, not like a powerful executive. And she says, straight up why did we have this wedding if not to be on the cover of a magazine the whole point of their wedding was not a partnership it wasn't love it was to get a magazine cover to promote her album she has this line about how he protected her from her family too and I think when something about her is she's only ever known chaos and I think this goes back to being like the one thing that I care about is the music you know it was the lesser of two evils she stepped into a relationship with him and it's like well no maybe it's not the love I want it's not the love I dream of and he's not perfect but it's safe and he protects me from the immediate crisis of my family. She tells a story that when she signed her first record deal for a million dollars, her mom invites her back to the house on Long Island and Morgan's there. And Morgan essentially tries to extort $5,000 out of her to kill her mother's current husband, who he says might try and sell and blackmail her or sell stories about their family, the tabloids. And so the only way to fix it is to kill him for $5,000. And Mariah's like, do not fucking kill someone on my behalf. And also, I mean, she keeps, she kind of hits it on the head of like, and this is somebody my mom is currently married to. Like, why is somebody who my mom is actively bringing into our life so dangerous that we might need to murder her? Like, it was such a crazy situation. And so that's what she's dealing with at home. And I think at least Tommy isn't after her money, even though he is using her. It seems like relative safety. She ends it with, there was also a very sophisticated security equipment outfitted throughout the house, listening devices, motion detecting cameras, recording my every move. So of course, as I'm sure you guys can imagine, this relationship ends up coming to a horrible end and she is being fully controlled and stalked and followed by her husband, who is also her boss. So she talks about how as her first albums are coming out, this is all while she's sequestered at this upstate mansion. And she has no concept for her success. Like she knows that she's won Grammys and that she's doing really well. And part of me is like, how is this possible? Because she became famous so quickly. I am like, maybe you missed it. Like maybe you were up in the mansion and like because you didn't have social media, you just like didn't see that people were obsessed with you. But like she doesn't find out until she does this live performance They had to like barricade the streets in order to keep the crowd controlled for her show. And she's like, what the fuck is happening? And they're like, this is for you. And she was like, people like me. And it's like, you know, you went platinum, right? Like you were there. You saw you have the little the record on your wall. (laughs) I do think like numbers in a spreadsheet are different than throngs of people. She says, for four solid years of my life, I was writing, singing, producing and doing photo shoots, video shoots, press junk and some promotional tours. All the awards and accolades I received were handed out in highly coordinated industry settings. 
It just seemed to be part of the work. If I had any free time, I was sequestered in an old farmhouse in Hudson Valley. Tommy orchestrated all of it. I was in my early 20s. But because I was never alone, I had no comprehension of the impact my music and I were making on the outside world. Did Tommy know I would be easier to control if I were kept ignorant of the full scope of my power? So she sees all of these fans. It makes her realize what's going on. And I think that was a mistake that he made too because... And she talks more about this. I feel like she tries to kind of position herself as like the pioneer of fandoms, like with the Lamely and like, oh, I knew. And I really foster this relationship with my fans. And I think that she really does care about her music and people liking her music just for the sake of people liking her art. And I think that she didn't like that he kept her from people who supported the music more than he was keeping things from her. Because I think there is an element to the relationship of her wanting him to insulate her from things. But I think insulating her from her fans was a mistake. That was like what drew her to him was his appreciation of her music. I think this sentence kind of sums up their relationship. More than my personal happiness, I needed in my career as an artist to survive. Happiness was secondary. Happiness was a fleeting bonus. I married Tommy because I thought it was the only way for me to survive in that relationship. I saw the power he could put behind my music, and he saw the power my music could give him. Our holy matrimony was built on creativity and vulnerability. I respected Tommy as a partner. If only he had known how to give me the respect I was due as a human being. So something interesting is she says, like, her fans are the people she trusts most in life. And later with that TRL moment that we were referring to, she refers to seeing her fans in real life as her therapy. And I think that that's a sentence that got really lost on the TV show. It seems like she just showed up. She's like, this is therapy. This is therapy. And especially 20 years ago, people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? But what she meant by that is being with fans is what a lot of people would say being with family or being with friends is. To her, she finds soothing in her soul when she's with the fans, which for anybody else, I would argue is probably not a healthy relationship to have with strangers. But I don't know where else she can put that trust. Like she doesn't have a family. She doesn't have a real life. Because then she walks through what her married life was like and as things started intensifying around her. So she realizes everyone whose job it was to look after me had deep connections to him. Like everyone in their life, like on their payroll, on their staff was his childhood friend, his person from this. She has no one that she can trust because everyone's been put in place by him. So anyone that she even like thinks she has a relationship with is more loyal to Tommy than her. She does four or five albums while married to him and she talks a lot about how the record label wanted to keep her as adult contemporary, which is a phrase that I don't even hear anymore. I don't think that that's like a contemporary <laughs> distinction of music, but she keeps saying that she wants to be quote unquote urban, which is what they were calling like hip hop, R&B, rap. And that was a relatively new sound that was entering the mainstream. Tommy was against it, but she insisted and she thinks he was very threatened by her ability to like understand what was going on at the moment. He was very married to like the old greats like Frank Sinatra and that's not really how you stay relevant when you're obsessed with 20 year old music. But a real highlight of her life is getting old dirty bastard to be on fantasy, which is, I think my favorite song ever. I mean, she talks a lot about how Tommy had like a very specific mission of hiding and like not acknowledging her blackness. She talks about the hairstyle that they would put her in where they would straighten and then curl her hair because she was like, when my hair was straightened, it looked like it had been straightened and it wasn't naturally straight. And if I left it naturally curly, then it like looked not like white people's hair. And if they straightened it, then curled it, I looked ambiguously Italian. And then she, you see this when she's talking about incorporating hip hop into her music. She's like, I really wanted my music to like lean in this direction. And she says the label didn't understand how diverse her fan base was. And I'm like, the label wouldn't acknowledge how diverse she was. <laughs> like the label wouldn't even view her as anything other than white. So like they refused to look at her fan base as anything other than white. 
And as soon as she did, she like created a new genre of music. She like cracked open people's fucking worlds by putting these verses on pop songs. When we first did this book, we had Matteo Lane on as a guest who is a trained opera singer and a Mariah Carey stan. And something that we really got from him was he, of course, as opera singer, wanted to hear about the technicalities of how she built her voice. And he was like, that is distinctly absent from this book, which I didn't know because as somebody who can't sing, I just assume you can or you can't like you're born that way. I didn't realize how much training has to go into being able to sing that well. But he's like, I can tell you this book is about her getting what is due as a musician, as a producer and as a lyricist. And I find it interesting later. She talks about Aretha Franklin and she goes, I think if you're a woman and an incredible singer, people want to take away the rest of the musicianship from you. And I think this whole book, in addition to, of course, her family history, her personal history, I think one of the points she has to make is give me my fucking credit. Like everyone knows she has an amazing voice, but she wants you to know that she did something with it. Well, I remember when I was reading the book the first time I had a friend casually like make a joke because I was like, oh, she writes all her own music. And they're like, oh, like all I want for Christmas is you. And they were kidding. And I was like, no, she literally wrote that song. The reason you assume it's a classic is because she wrote it to sound like nostalgia. And she incepted all of us into being like, well, of course, this is a remake of a hit song that we all grew up with as our grandparents knew. And it's like, no, she's just that talented that she made us all think we already knew it. So she's making her first couple albums. She's making Daydream. And while she's making Daydream is when things really start to come to a head with Tommy and when she's like so deeply unhappy in her life, but unable to acknowledge it to anyone in the outside world. So when they're recording this album, she is after hours recording a full grunge album, which she says earlier this year, the news broke that she's trying to remaster and re-release it or like release it in general. And there was a clip of it that I found online It is really fucking good. And I really (laughs) wanted to come out. She says she would put on an alter ego called Bianca and sing (laughs) this grunge music. I need it. So her and Tommy's relationship is falling apart. And the only good thing that is happening is that he has a longtime therapist who they go to and they start going to couples therapy. And luckily, this therapist is actually quite good at her job. And even though she is technically on Tommy's payroll, she's like, Tommy, what you're doing is wrong. And she gets to talk to Mariah alone. And she's like, this is not normal. And essentially helps her create as an escape plan. And they know it has to be subtle and considered because they are so intertwined professionally. And Tommy is a psychotic person who is vengeful and powerful. So you have to go about it the right way. The therapist helps concoct with them these plans for Mariah to get her own space. Starts with her being like allowed for a couple of hours to be chauffeured to an acting class. She's getting private acting tutoring and that is her time alone and then she gets her own space that is connected to her acting teacher's apartment that she can like sneak into then she finally gets to have a night on the town by herself and it is the night she meets Derek Jeter I will say I'm like Tommy you were right don't let that bitch out of your sight she's gonna fall in love (laughs) so she goes out for one night and she's at this party and it has hip-hop people and artists and producers and fashion people and who should walk in but the, as she calls him, rather pedestrian, Derek Cheater. <laughs> and she's like, next to everybody who was cool, he looked like an idiot. Not an idiot, but she's like, he looked lame as shit. And then she finds out that he's also black and Irish. And she like zeroes in and is like, oh, I've never had this connection with someone in my life. Infatuation just like sweeps over her entire body. 
which I think just goes to show she just wanted to be understood. And the minute she's like, oh, wait, you might understand me better than my husband. And then it's like, okay, so I'm going to date you now. She's just so desperate to be understood that she'll go anywhere she can find it. Ultimately, a very important step for her. I think Derek Jeter gets a lot of space in this book. And compared to the way like Matthew Perry talked about Julia Roberts, for example, I found it warranted because in meeting the Jeters, she was given a mirror that she could hold up to find healing and start seeing what was the problem and what was not in her own life. And so basically they become infatuated with each other. It's very cute. They're like sneaking texts. I guess not texts. I don't know. There's texting back in the day, but (laughs) sneaking phone calls and trying to meet up. I mean, she's a young, cute girl in her 20s. She's horny and she's married to this like dork ass old middle-aged man. doesn't even sound like they bone. And so, you know, you guys have had a crush. You can relate. So they like have this operation where they meet at a pizza parlor and they go back to his house and they're on the roof and it starts pouring down rain and they kiss and they have this incredible night in the rain. And she goes home and writes like verbatim what happened in the song, My All. And she literally like the lyrics of the song are like, we're on the roof. Your name is Derek Jeter. (laughs) We just pretended (laughs) to eat pizza. We're kissing. It's November. (laughs) (laughs) I think that her thing with Derek Jeter, she calls it not the love of her life, but a love of her life. I don't even think she loved him. I think it helped her discover that there could be love in her life. That is what it opened up for her. This is like her first schoolgirl crush. It's like the first time she's infatuated with someone because when she was in high school, she says she had a couple boyfriends and they were always like big protective dudes because her life was so chaotic. So when she was younger, she would go straight for these guys who could protect her. As soon as she was a little bit older and moved into New York, she like went straight for the person who could financially protect her and surround her with people who could physically protect her. And then now she's like meeting someone where for the first time she's like, oh, you I like. Well, also, she was a virgin until Tommy, which was very important to her because she was so afraid of becoming her mother and her sister. And so I think this is the first time she felt obviously financially and professionally stable enough to be open to the possibility of a sexual relationship with somebody without this fear that like she's going to get pregnant and her life's going to end or this idea that like, yeah, you can have sex, but it was, it's with your like ogre husband. He's, he's not an ogre, but emotionally (laughs) (laughs) they kind of keep the charade up. Meanwhile, she's in therapy. She's distancing herself more and more. Well, I think the trial separation was like a word that the therapist came up with as like, what if you guys tried separating once a week? Yeah. Like we're going to microdose divorce. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so she goes to Puerto Rico. They kind of have this weekend out. She doesn't sleep with him because she doesn't want to like cheapen her relationship to Derek Jeter with her marriage. But eventually they finally do it. She gets a divorce. That afternoon I flew to Tampa to meet up with Derek Jeter. They, I think, end up dating for like six weeks. It seems like it was incredibly quick love affair. But the thing that was most important to her, that relationship, is because he came from a mixed race family, she was able to see that like they loved each other and they were very healthy and happy. His sister was obviously also biracial and meeting her and like seeing that their family unit was whole and good really helped her see like the inherent problem between her parents was not necessarily that her father was black and her mother was white. It's that they as individuals were not able to come together and create a healthy and loving family. And that soothed a part of her soul that made her understand like, how do I live a better life? That wasn't the problem. It was them. And I think that that offered her a lot of healing for her future. As she expected, after she and Tommy divorce, it becomes like very creatively stifling at her label. He is a very vindictive and horrible person. And so he starts making life very difficult for her. So she decides she needs to get out of her contract. He's not going to let that happen. So she, while on tour going through Japan, decides to meet with the head of Sony, like the 
top guy in charge of all of Sony. And with him, she's able to come to an agreement to end their contract, which is still four albums to be delivered over the next five years. She like is shopping around. She's talking to new labels and she signs a deal with Virgin, who she thinks gives a lot of like creative freedom to their artists. I believe it was $100 million. So she signs this like enormous fucking deal. And her first project with Virgin is going to be Glitter. And there is a fuck ton of pressure on this album because Virgin just spent like all of the money that anyone has ever had in the world on Mariah Carey. And so it's really important to them that this album be a smash hit. And she's kind of losing her shit because I think that as much as she hated Tommy, I think that there was sort of a comfort in his belief in her. And now she's just got like $100 million riding on her back. And she has Tommy from a rival record label fighting her. Like there's this one instance where first of all, he like invents JLo out of an AI creator to like fuck with her. Then he starts picking up on the samples that she's going to be using and stealing them. Like he literally steals samples and gives them to JLo before Mariah can put them out on a record. And she's just panicking. Like everything in her life has come to this head and she is putting out this album. She's putting out this movie and she has no like real external support. I think if she had grown into that point, she'd be a lot more prepared for it. But because she was kind of like shot out of a cannon into this space, she's like already frazzled. And then I think with all female celebrities and stars, people decide a point to start being like, actually, she's losing it. So people are waiting to watch her fail. She's freaking out. She puts out the first single off of Glitter and it hits number two. And the label is like, we signed you to make number ones. What the fuck is this number two? And she's like, I still think number two is really good. And they're like, it's literally not. It's actually not good at all. And so she's like freaking out in every direction. And that's when she has the infamous breakdown. And so with the label pressure on her, she starts going into hyperdrive to put the pressure on herself to make this album a hit. So she starts overworking herself in promotions. She has that TRL stunt gone awry where she like shows up on TRL to try and promote her album. And Carson Daly just kind of acts like she's insane. And everyone is bouncing off Carson, who is the host of the show and controls the energy of the show. And so since Carson is acting like she's lost her mind, everyone's like, I guess she's lost her mind. And I really think that he is the domino that knocked her life over for a really long time. I would agree with that. That was messed up. And I also think that she just wants to be understood so badly and to just feel so misunderstood so publicly, I think really messed with her. And something she talks about a lot in this book is back in the day, pre-social media, there was no way to correct the system. And she goes, now, you know, something bad happens to someone and it's a 24-hour news cycle. She goes, back then, they did not let it go. They were like a dog with a bone. And so she goes on TRL and the stunt was that she was crashing TRL and showed up with ice cream. And she goes, of course I didn't fucking crash TRL. Publicist, security. She's like, do you know how many people had to be informed that I was coming? It was fully planned. And they truly treated me like I was just some psychopath who walked in. You don't just walk into a TV set. (laughs) A lot of this book is dedicated to setting the record straight around this event and this couple months of her life. And I did, the first time I read it, think like, okay, she doth protest quite a bit. But now looking at it, you're like, no, she's responding to the amount that we've, the public, have placed weight on this couple of months of her life. Because I don't think you can talk about Mariah Carey without people mentioning glitter and her losing it around this time. Even though when you look at like the expanse of her career, you're like, okay, this was six weeks. Soon after that, she ended up with another couple of hits. Like it's not that huge of a deal, but the way people equate this with the other 
great things she's done. You're like, of course she needs to sit back and crack this moment. She's putting as much weight on it as we put on it. And we, the people, put a lot of weight on it. So the stunt goes awry. She is viewed as a bit of a loon for dropping in on TRL. Then there is like a bunch of other promotional stuff happening. It's a little bit scattered the way she's writing about it because I think it's a bit scattered the way she remembers it. But overall, the main takeaways are she is deep in a promotional cycle for Glitter, the movie, and the album. The album is not doing quite as well as they think it should be with the first single dropping. So they're doubling her workload, making more music videos, doing more promotional stuff. She hasn't slept for more than two hours and six days, she says. When she starts like seeking a place to just rest, she skips a music video shoot. It doesn't matter that I was completely spent. What mattered was that they had spent more than $100 million on Mariah Carey. They wanted all their glittery products ready for sale now. There was no one around to intervene to help coach the label on how to pace the project and my productivity. No one had the strength or power to say no to unreasonable requests on my behalf and the pressure was steadily rising. I was exhausted and the most difficult part was the diabolical delight the tabloid media was milking out of my moment of weakness. It was a non-stop never-ending circus. I recall watching one entertainment show after the TRL debacle where they were talking about me in the past tense. It was so surreal. It's as if I was watching an in-memoriam of Mariah Carey and all I wanted was to rest in peace. So she starts seeking out a place to sleep. She checks into a hotel and then her brother finds her there. She goes to Brooklyn Heights to stay with a background singer that she's become friends with. Her brother finds her there. Her brother convinces her that the best place for her to rest will be up in Westchester. She had bought her mom a house right by Sing Sing. Her Sing Sing, not the real. I guess it is next to both Sing Sings. (laughs) Triangulated by. Sandwiched betwixt. (laughs) Sandwiched betwixt prisons of two very different thread counts. (laughs) She goes to her mom's house. She decides to like hyper fixate on doing the dishes because she hates how messy her mom's house is. She and her dad are very clean people. And she's like, I need to just do the dishes and then I'll go to sleep. And then every I'll wake up and everything will be fine. So she starts doing the dishes. She falls asleep. I want to actually interject here. So the first time we read this book, I was sure she was on drugs. And I think that that was very much like something I'd seen in the media. I feel like in my head, I had really combined her and Britney Spears' stories. And I feel like I was like, oh, of course there had to have been drugs involved. What do you mean she was up for six straight days? I'm sure she was doing something to help give her energy. You know what I mean? Even if it's just Adderall, Adderall is meth. (laughs) And looking back, I'm like, oh, I think actually... Not that I'm 100% sure she wasn't doing drugs, which I don't think is a problem either way. But I am like, I do think it could have just been a good old fashioned mental breakdown because she had been driven past her breaking point and she hadn't been sleeping. And then also another part of this is she was completely paranoid that she was being watched and followed at all times. One, because she was being watched and followed at all times. But two, she just come out of this abusive situation with Tommy where he literally had surveillance on her. Like she was driven to insanity, basically. And so I just wanted to go back and correct that, that I am no longer so convinced And this was one of the moments that made me think that she's on the spectrum because this reads as typical. I'm flooded meltdown of and what you said of like, she said she was dropping dishes, but like, I think she was breaking them. I agree. I think that she was breaking dishes. I don't think it was because of drugs, but I think she was very upset and she was having a meltdown. And that's why her mom called the cops as much as I believe her mom called the cops and that was an overreaction. I don't think it was like based on just what she said. And this is also something that makes me think that she's withholding a lot of things because it's like 
textbook meltdown. You're not saying everything that happened, but you needed to put this in the story. Yeah. And part of me wonders if she even remembers everything that happened. Yeah. And I think I picked up on that the first time that I felt that she was telling the story in this way where she could be as close to a perfect victim as possible. And I understood that that came from a place of she has been so destroyed by the media. She's hyper protective of her own image and her own story. And I do believe she is the victim. And like, that's what I wanted to say to her is like, if you're on drugs, it's okay. Like you've been through a lot of shit. A lot was being asked of you. But I guess like the way I'd amend that now is even though I do think she's still withholding something in order to make it more palatable for her to be 100% the victim. I do think like what had happened to her was enough to drive her to a, a full on breakdown. If she broke everything in that house, she bought that fucking house as was her right. Like I'm on her side no matter what, but I stand by that. I don't know that this is the full story. And I think that part of it too, and again, this is 100% me speculating, but based on her family dynamic, I think that they intentionally triggered her to have a breakdown. And so I think that that's the picture she's, like we said, this she's painting a picture of how it felt and she wants to be believed more than she wants to tell the truth. And so I think that she told it this way, but I think that they fully knew she wasn't in a good place and they wanted to push her over the edge. That was their goal. As we said, her mom calls the police, they show up. And this is where the story got very confusing to me. So her and her brother get in this police car and she tells the police officers, I just need to relax. Take me to this spa I've heard about in town. And that's, she says it's her idea. She goes, I've heard about the spa people talk about. So I say, take me there. And it turns out the spa is like a psychological rehab facility. And I'm just kind of like, who did you overhear to th- calling this a spa? Like, where, how did that happen? How did you just by coincidence misunderstand that there's no other spas in Westchester? The spa you went to happened to be like a lockdown facility where it sounds like you were 5150 because she wasn't allowed to leave for 72 hours. So I wonder, I'm like, even if you had voluntarily walked into that spa, I think if you voluntarily walk in, you're allowed to voluntarily walk out. Like someone else had to have committed you there. So it's weird that in this version of the story, it's her idea and it was a misunderstanding. And then she gets out And she goes home where her brother is like, maybe you should go to Los Angeles because the media is painting you as a crazy person. So you need to get away from the newspapers and you need to go to a real spa. And in Los Angeles, they have no newspapers and they have spas. And she's like, yes. And you're like, there is something missing from this part of the story, too, because that is not sound logic. (laughs) She's like, it made sense to me. And I'm like, why, though? So, of course, then she gets there and she's like, it turns out, again, it wasn't a spa. It was another like mental facility. And then the weirdest 9-11 of all the 9-11s. So 9-11 happens and she's trapped in here. They're drugging her within an inch of her life. And she claims that because of 9-11, they said, you can leave now. She Like literally the quote is, there was a terrorist attack on the country. You can leave. I think this was her main character syndrome. Just like everyone cared about these three things happening. Me being in rehab and 9-11 were just like very top of mind for everyone. (laughs) This line, she goes, the coincidence of my sudden release from quote rehab and the release of the glitter soundtrack and the 9-11 attacks was haunting. (laughs) To me personally, I would not have drawn a parallel between any of those events. That was especially troubling for me to read because she's clearly very spiritual. Like throughout the book, she like talks about astrology and like things happening for a reason. And I was like, I believe that you believe that these three things happening was like some auspicious coincidence pointing to you being the main character of all of our lives. But no, I'm dying. Think about someone being like glitter bombed and 9-11. Wow. (laughs) Mercury is in retrograde. (laughs) 
<laughs> literally, literally, that was the vibe. So she gets out. And so she goes to therapy now and or she has been. And she uses the rest of the chapter to kind of tell you what her therapist says, which I find it to be a very interesting narrative device to blame her family, rightfully so, for a lot, but like not make it be her own words. So she's like, my therapist thinks her mom and her brother were in cahoots to kind of break her down and essentially Britney Spears her. And I think they wanted to put her in a conservatorship. They wanted to show that she was erratic. They wanted to basically Tommy Mottola her and completely control her. And I believe that. And she thinks 9-11 saved her. And I believe that too. (laughs) Essentially, like, isn't it a coincidence? And this part is a not a coincidence like this part I'll give her that once she was out of the grips of Tommy Matola and signed the biggest record deal in history that they saw an opportunity to take control of her assets. So in the wake of this, she finds God. She turns to the church and she says, after all that shit, Lover Boy ended up being the best selling single of 2001 in the United States. I'm real. So she realizes that her family is never going to be the family that she thinks a family is supposed to be. And then like the rest of the book is just like 60 pages called The Emancipation. It's about the whole rest of her life. It's odd because I think it really drives home like what an insane blip this was 20 years ago and how everything else has just been kind of existing in the aftermath. And she does Charm Bracelet, which does fine. She eventually does The Emancipation of Mimi, which crushes. Always Be My Baby is named the song of the decade. So she comes back strong. And then we get her famous, my favorite line from this book, where she like once again talks about seeking refuge in her fandom and how your fans like will come to your defense and protect you. Our fans can come to our defense, bring all the receipts and create a united front so that no bland host or commenter or ravenous paparazzi can even begin to compete with our influence. We are the media. And she's talking about how social media has kind of changed the entire system for her. And then she goes, I only wish Princess Di had lived long enough to have Instagram or Twitter. (laughs) She wraps up this book. Her father passes away and she talks about coming to an appreciation of each other later in life which I think clarifies her perspective on him earlier in the book you know she talks about realizing that he'd been following her career very heavily there's never an explanation of where he was for most of her life it seems like they saw each other on Sundays as a child and then as she kind of became a tween that fell to the wayside and then it seems like she doesn't see him again till he dies and I'm like where was he ever and that's never really explained and I think it's because she wants to glorify him that it's easy to leave out where he left out left himself out I was really hard on her dad like as I was reading I was like she's completely blaming her mom for everything but her dad just like was absent and this is a thing that happens but he does seem to make a concerted effort towards the end to like actually repair things that her mom despite still being in her life seems like she still refuses to do I mean, there's this story that we didn't mention because this kind of plays sporadically in the book, but she goes to like the White House to get some giant honor from the White House and her mom gets so drunk and has to be removed from the dinner and she's just in the dressing room screaming, I hate Mariah, I hate my daughter. That's like such a painful moment. That's one of the few stories I remembered actually vividly rereading this, that that was one of the things that stayed with me as like, we can sit here and be like, oh, the comment in the car that you'll never be the singer I am, that was said for no reason and it wasn't meant to be so hurtful but to as an adult be talking about your adult daughter at the White House and saying I hate her I don't know how you forgive that yeah so the rest of this book it runs through just like the other 
artists she admires and then her relationship with Luis Miguel and then finally her relationship with Nick Cannon. She talks about these relationships both pretty briefly and I think only because she like can't not comment on them especially the Nick Cannon relationship. It's really just to be like well you guys know that I have kids with him so. So I have to admit that we were together. I mean it's funny because with Luis Miguel she's like he bought me such expensive stuff and then with Nick Cannon she's like he made me laugh. (laughs) I'm like ah the cheapest (laughs) gift in the world the gift of laughter. <laughs> Truly, the broke man's roses. <laughs> I really thought she would mention all the other kids too, like somehow, some way. But just she, I don't know, heard them too. Just like they're not in here. Can we read what she said about Nick Cannon having? Because I just think it's so funny knowing the like I highlighted this part. I sincerely thought I would never have kids. Our relationship changed that. We talked very seriously about having children, and that changed everything. Having children together became our reason. Our desire to have children became a force of nature and why we got married so quickly. Like, what is he saying to these women? I need to see the monologue. I need to see the sales pitch. (laughs) This man, he had a real career in timeshares had he not become a comedian slash actor slash drum liner. (laughs) I remember this headline when they got married that they needed a prenup because when he entered the marriage, his net worth was like 150K and hers was 150 million. It really bothered me too how he proposed to her when she was being honored for something. Like I really don't like when Don't guys... steal her moment. Yes. Like that's not cool. But she didn't seem to care. But uh, what like, about when she had poisonous edema and so she gained a hundred pounds and it was in constant pain. And they went to one of their last checkups at the OBGYN and the guy looked over at my sulking second husband and said, poor Nick, he's so exhausted. And if I'm going to make a dartboard, a Christmas style dartboard for every man in every memoir that dares show up to the labor of his child and is like, but I'm uncomfy. And then he went on to have 70,000 more children. Well, that's, oh, that's the other thing I wanted to say is her leaving out those other kids at the time of writing this book, which was probably 2019. I don't even know how many others there were. We forget that this is like a modern phenomenon, like COVID. Nick no, Cannon's- there were seven. There was a bunch before that. But I feel like they've like proliferated at a different rate. Like he used to have a lot of kids one at a time. And now he's like, I could have four or five at once. He's getting more efficient. Exponential yeah. growth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It just kind of ends with her talking about how much she loves her children and how she's trying to give them the best life possible and how she's really turned to the church. In the end and in the beginning, it's all about faith for me. I can't define it, but faith has defined me. Yeah, I feel like her life could have been much darker and she definitely like seems to have taken what she was dealt and stayed kind of innocent and pure in some ways that it's very, I feel like that's almost as impressive as all of her singing talent that she's been able to keep this whimsy about her despite all of this. Well, she says that she is perpetually 12 years old. And she's like, the reason I say that is because at 12 is when I lost my innocence at 12 is when her sister tried to traffic her. And I think that's the hardest thing in life is to have hard things happen to you and stay soft and like stay hopeful. I mean, this book is very effective. I think in that I was not someone who thought about Mariah Carey and now I'm like, I would defend her to the end of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any final thoughts, Megan, on the whole book? Um, Not really. I mean, I've always liked Mariah Carey. And so thank you guys for giving me the opportunity to dive deeper into her backstory. I didn't know we were this similar. So that was fun for me too. And yeah, overall, I thought it was fun. And I'm going to enjoy Mariah's season a little more now. Yeah. Yeah. We're entering. That's why we did it for Christmas for the lowercase queen of Christmas. (laughs) 
<laughs> Megan, thank you so much for being here. It was so great to have you on. Where can people find you? You can find me on TikTok at Virgo Like Beyonce, like Claire said earlier. That's the best place, I would say. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys so much. Have a beautiful uh, week. Thank you so much to all of our five-star reviewing wormies. Thank you, Sierra MT. You have got the best tea collection. Thank you, Jay Mays 18. I would get lost in a maze with you. Thank you, Womb at Forever. I would also just crawl into a womb forever with you. Thank you to Frowny Face Not Good At All. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that you think that this is good at all. Thank you, Alaska April. Oh my God, I'm sure Alaska is beautiful in April. Thank you, Green-Eyed Danny. Oh my God, you know I'm a sucker for some green eyes. Thank you, S. Cummin. Oh baby, S is a Cummin. Thank you, Chelsea is here to make friends. Chelsea, I would love to be friends. Thank you to He Gale. Oh, there's a Gale Force Wind and he's over there. Thank you, Lizzie 10B. My favorite number of Lizzie's. Thank you to Roy Wide Kings. Stay wide, King. Thank you, Travis Roden. Oh my gosh. Are you related to the original Haley Bieber? Thank you, Kate. Another perfect round of tea. There are a lot of teas in that one. Thank you, Jesse Logan 20. I friggin' wish that I could be Jesse's girl. Thank you to Burnt Toast Flip Flop. Honestly, the best smelling flip-flop I think I can imagine. Thank you to Cashly98. Hell yeah, I get that, Cashly. Thank you to Brent Real. This is spelled like Brent Real. I hope you become the new king of Montreal. Thank you to CanCBD, TBH, Baez, ZJI. I hope you find the answer to that question. Thank you to Jacqueline Jean1229. You know I'm obsessed with a good gene. Thank you to PDX. I hope that I get to see you when we go to PDX. Thank you to Bugs Mug. Oh my God. There's nothing I love more than Bugs Mug. Thank you to LG0113. Let's go, 0113. Thank you to Rach KLLJSNBBG. All those letters to you, baby girl. Thank you to Hoboken Gooner. Tell Bailey I say hello. Thank you to Snug as a Pug in a Rug. Oh my God. Please send me a picture of a little pug in a rug. Thank you to Spudnik One. I think that's like a space thing. So you're out of this world. Thank you. I'm a cool mom 22. You are a cool mom 22. Thank you to Kay Collins. I would love to cheers you with a Tom Collins. Thank you to Yas Derek. Yas Derek. Thank you for this review. Thank you to period, comma, K, comma, M. I appreciate the way you punctuate. Thank you to Bugs BF Trooper. Oh my God. A smooch from Bug to Trooper from me. Thank you, Clindle. I appreciate your clean vibes. Thank you, Catherine O'Kane, my favorite cath in the game. Thank you, Susie Q. I feel like they're looking for you. Thank you to Glon Coco. You go, Glon Coco. Thank you to Gail28, another gorgeous gust of wind. Thank you to Jenny T. Way. It's your way or the highway, Jen. Thank you to Maze. My name, Worming is my game. Oh my gosh. You're fucking killing the game. Thank you to J.R. Holcomb. You seem very wholesome. 
Thank you to Subaru Sapphic. Hell yeah, baby, let's drive. Thank you to Fishy E-N. I love a good sush. Thank you to A-J-K-A-N-K-D-F-N. Your letters are the sound of a rainbow to me. Thank you to Becca Boove. I like the way you groove. Thank you to Purple6381. Oh my gosh, I used to start wars over how much I loved the color purple. Thank you to Danielle Marie B. You be my absolute favorite. Thank you to Open Table Girl. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear about your latest reservation. Thank you to SFHJSGLSD. Let's all trip on some LSD, baby. Okay, I think that that is all for this week. Thank you so much. I love you guys so much. I'll see you next week.